page 1110 from Acts chapter 12, verse 25. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Thank you, Sue, so much for reading for us. Now, a number of years ago, a company very close to St. Helens had as founder and CEO a guy who was into the Eastern spiritual philosophy of feng shui. I'm not quite sure how much this was his own personal conviction and quite how much he was seeking to appeal to an Eastern market. But whichever, he'd organized the furniture and the whole philosophy of the company around that feng shui spirituality. In fact, in the lobby, in the front of the company, there was a fish tank divided into two sections, and according to getting the right vibe with feng shui, getting the right uh, energies flowing in the right direction, you have to have seven fish in one side and seven the other. Well, that was very difficult to maintain because of breeding and disease, so it never quite worked out. But I met him socially, and he said, you must come to lunch, and so I accepted, and we went and sat at the top floor of his company, and there were just six of us. Him, sitting opposite me, his chief financial officer, his chief operating officer on either side of him, and then two other senior guys sitting either side of me. And there was a bit of, you know, sort of chit-chat at the start, and then we sat down and lunch was served. And as we were about to tuck into lunch, he said, William, what do you make of our spiritual philosophy here? that you organize your furniture in order to achieve good financial vibes and, and so forth, and it all works to bless you and so forth. I wonder what you would have said. I want us to see today that God drives forward his gospel into previously un-gospel, that's non-Christian regions, and he does it by raising up ascending church, by commissioning a spoken ministry, and by silencing opposition. 
We've come to a key point in the book of Acts. We're at the start of the fourth major section. I call each section a panel, and we're at the start of the next new panel. And the panel's endings are signaled by those phrases, like you can see in verse 24, the word of of God increased and multiplied. And you get that five different times through the book of Acts. And now we find the Apostle Paul to the fore, and for the rest of the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul is, as it were, at the front of the action. And we see the Christian gospel penetrating into previously uncharted territories. I hope you were given this little card as you came in. It's not another invitation to a, 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 a tour of the, you know, of Greece or Turkey or anything like that. It's actually a map. And I have to tell you, it's not drawn by me. Uh, it wouldn't be nearly so professional. It's put together, I think, by Tim here. And you will see that down in the south there on the right, that's at the bottom of the map on the right, we got Jerusalem. And then up towards the top on the right, you've got Antioch. And that is not known as Syrian Antioch, because there's confusingly another Antioch, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks' time. Now, we first came across the church in Antioch back in chapter 11. And originally, the church got formed as a result of scattered, persecuted Christians who ended up there and found themselves speaking not only to Jewish people, but also to non-Jews known as Gentiles. When we last visited Syrian Antioch, the non-Jewish Christians in the church had taken up a collection to support the physical needs of the Jewish background believers in Jerusalem, which in and of itself is a staggering thing because Jews and Gentiles just didn't mix. It's like Ukrainian Christians taking up a collection to help the poor for the Christians in Russia. Or like Uh, Rohingya refugees coming to Christ in Bangladesh and sending back aid to Christians in Myanmar. It's that stark and extraordinary an act. But from our text in chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, you can see that by now we have a number of teachers in the church. Barnabas is named first. Barnabas originally came from Cyprus. Simeon Clearly an African, Niger in Latin means black. He was a man of color. Lucius of Cyrene, which is on the North African coast in modern-day Libya. Manane from the court of Herod. He was the posh bloke in the court, in, in the group. Saul, who we've come across already, came originally from Tarsus in southeastern Turkey. And then John Mark was there. He'd come up from Jerusalem. The church met in his mother's house, and he traveled with them. Already we've seen this church making godly decisions. In response to becoming Christians, they realize they've got real spiritual brothers and sisters down there in Jerusalem. They're in need, and they take a key decision to take up a collection and send money to help their social need. But now, in verse 2, we see these leaders of the church coming together prayerfully under God's word to consider the advance of the gospel. And the decision they come to in verse 2 and 3 change the course of Western history. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. And after fasting and praying, they laid hands on them 
and sent them off. Now, the they, when they were fasting and praying, most naturally refers to the six key leaders of the church. Some, unhelpfully, I think, suggest that the worship implies that they were in a whole church meeting of this sort in which we now find ourselves. Personally, I think that is rather implausible because they're fasting. And an hour and a quarter on a Sunday evening doesn't strike me as much of a fast. It looks like these leaders had determined to set themselves apart for concentrated prayer and decision-making. Most likely their worship consisted of studying God's word carefully and prayerfully because the Greek word, and you asked me about this next week in the question time used here, is almost always used of teaching the Bible or funding Bible teaching in the New Testament. And they were teachers. It seems then that they came together prayerfully and carefully, weighing the scriptures, and in that context of prayerful decision-making, they made a decision. When it says the Holy Spirit said, I don't think that the Holy Spirit actually spoke verbally in the church council. Elsewhere in Acts, we read of decisions being taken in a prayerful way, and then later they are described as the Holy Spirit said. Again, you can ask me about that if you want. So the decision taken was to recognize the work that God had already set the Apostle Paul apart for and thus send him out. And do you know, I can imagine, I know this is speculation, but I suspect Paul, Saul, or later known Paul, argued his corner. You can just imagine, remember, he had been told when he became a Christian that he was a chosen instrument to carry the name of Jesus before the Gentiles. And you can just imagine him in the church council saying, now come on, this is what the Bible says. We're meant to be taking the Christian gospel to the ends of the earth. I'm the person who was set apart to do this by God at my conversion. Come on, it's time you sent me out. I mean, maybe he didn't and he'll have a go at me when we get to heaven if I've misrepresented him, but I can imagine that. And as I say, the decision in verses two and three, why it's one of the most significant moments in global history. Do you know, if you've read Tom Holland or listened to Jordan Peterson or in fact studied history in any way, you will know that the Christian faith has had more impact on Western society than any other. And this decision is, if you like, the moment a church decides to send people into Turkey and from there into Greece and from there into Rome. Now, of course, this is a one-off and we're reading of a key moment in the history of the church. It's like the tide turning and the image I've used is of a dam bursting or a tornado advancing. But this pattern of God forming a sending church, descriptive as it is, also demonstrates what God uses regularly for the advance of the gospel in the book of Acts. In fact, uh, Tim, when he put this map together, I assume it was Tim, very helpfully did three of the key churches with big, what do you call those, Tim? Blobs. Yeah, Jerusalem down there in the bottom. They took prayerful decisions to send uh, Barnabas up to Antioch. Antioch, uh, well, that's where Barnabas recruited Saul from Tarsus, and that became a big sending center. 
And then if you look across to the west or the left, if you prefer that, right over there, Ephesus, that became a key sending center. And if you look down through history, that is exactly what the Lord has done. Think of Geneva. I mean, when I was sitting in your seat at your kind of stage back in the 1980s, why, there was a church in Sydney, Australia called St. Matthias. That was used hugely across the world. Many who had sat in those seats previously to the 1980s would have pointed across to All Souls Langham Place, still do today, used enormously across the world. The Crossing in Singapore, Redeemer in New York, But then as you think about it, you think to yourself, well, in a sense, every church should be like that. And every council of a church, every decision-making prayerfully say, Lord, we know what your agenda it is. It is for the advance of the gospel across the globe. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, says the Lord Jesus, go therefore and make disciples. From the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, the advance of the kingdom of King Jesus is the agenda. And so every church, when it meets, prayerfully, thoughtfully, led by God in his word, the teaching of the word, strengthened by the Holy Spirit to make godly decisions, is going to be making such decisions. It's certainly been are concern, and any of you who sit on the church council here or are involved in any sort of leadership, I hope you're thinking all the time, where are we taking the gospel to? Who are we sending? And so forth. It's not simply the sending church that God creates. Secondly, God deploys a speaking ministry. Now, I'm going to read from verses 4 to 12, and as I do so, I want to ask you to answer the question in your head, What is it that God used for the conversion of Sergius Paulus, the advance of the gospel in Cyprus? So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they came to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They had John to assist them. When they'd gone through the whole island, as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus, He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, that's Bar-Jesus' other name, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Paul, who was also, Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now already in the passage, we've had prophets and teachers back there in verse Verse 1, the six of them, Lucius, Menane, uh, Paul, and so forth. The work of prophecy in the book of Acts is that of forth-telling, forth-telling what God has already revealed. 
On two occasions, possibly three, we find prophets who foretell. But primarily in the book of Acts, prophecy is forthtelling, both men and women, boys and girls, telling out what Jesus has revealed already about God. And in that sense, every believer is a prophet. That certainly is what Peter tells us in Acts chapter 2. Your young men and your old men will prophesy, as will your servants, girls and children, men, women, boys, girls, all the people of God, forthtelling the glorious truth God has revealed in Jesus Christ. So a five-year-old with their granny as they go to tea, and a non-Christian granny coming from a Christian home, uh, the five-year-old, oh, granny, don't you believe in Jesus? Don't you know that he's Lord of all? That's what we learned in Sunday school. I heard this week of a four-year-old, was I think four or five-year-old, going into the primary school class and sharing the Sunday school lessons with her friends in the primary school class. A prophetess, forthtelling. There's a city businessman here in the city. They employed a nanny and he was going through a particularly difficult time and the nanny once took him to one side and said, you know, Jesus would be such a help to you if only you turned to him for help. And the guy professed faith in Jesus, came here and so forth. But at the same time, there are others with a specific responsibility to speak and teach, people like Paul, Barnabas, Simeon, Manane, and Lucius. And as Saul heads into Cyprus, he teaches. He speaks with Sergius Paulus one-to-one. He reasons. He dialogues. He explains. All of this is the work of preaching the word and prophesying and teaching. Some less formal some more formal. I'm involved in a slightly more formal one here. It's sustained monologue. Nobody yet has interrupted me, and therefore, so far, it's a sustained monologue. But then just as that little four-year-old, she's involved in one-to-one prophesying and teaching. Jesus drives forward the advance of his gospel then by deploying speaking ministries in a variety of forms, heralding formally in the synagogue, discussing more generally, teaching in a more detailed way, one-to-one explanation and exhortation. Now, in a sense, you could say this from any passage in Acts, as we see the gospel advance. Why do I labor labor it? Because we need to be clear what this ministry is that advances the church, the gospel. There are many things that the ministry of the word produces, even in this passage. Prayer, worship, social care, mission, church planting. But it's the ministry of the word that produces these things. And the moment you start focusing on the thing that the ministry of the word produces rather than the ministry of the word why you end up heading, if you like, off-piste in Christian mission. Any number of Christian missions that have begun to focus on the, oh, the church planting rather than the ministry of the word. But how do you know those churches that you plant are actually going to be Christian? Well, only if the ministry of the word is taught. Community. 
but how do you know the community is going to be Christian? You find communities all over the place. I was speaking in Dirty Dick's Bar, downstairs in the basement, speaking the gospel on Wednesday at Bishopsgate North. Upstairs, there were a group of German supporters. I think Spurs were playing a German club. I don't know which one they was. They were in fine voice as I was speaking, and they were a great community, but they weren't Christian. No, it's the word of God that produces Christian community. And so it's deployment of a spoken ministry that advances the gospel. Finally, we see superstition silenced. These verses show us one instance of what this speaking ministry, commissioned by the sending church, looks like as it enters Gentile territory, previously unimpacted by the Christian gospel. Let's have a look at 6 to 8. When they'd gone through the whole island, as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician a Jewish false prophet named the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, that's Bar-Jesus, the magician, for that's the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Now, quite what Bar-Jesus believed or did, we're not told. The word Luke uses is the word magician. And so he appears to be some sort of court wizard employed or retained by Sergius Paulus, who himself had a fascination with superstition and occult practice. Bar-Jesus' bag appears to be a mixture of false ideas and philosophy. After all, he deceives and makes crooked. He must be teaching something together with occult practice. And obviously, when Paul came into town and started meeting with Sergius Paulus, who's an intelligent man, the word is he can think in straight lines. He can think in straight lines. And Paul starts reasoning with him, bar Jesus, he can see that his prestige and his livelihood is under threat. He's going to be chucked out on his ear. The Old Testament is full of such individuals, by the way. Magicians in Pharaoh's court, Balaam in the book of Numbers, astrologers, in King Nebuchadnezzar's court. I like to think they were the management consultants of their day. <laughs> but in verses 9 to 11, Bar-Jesus is silenced and struck blind. Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and he said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Now we need to realize that this is Paul, the apostle, doing this. And he, as with the other apostles, was given very specific power to do the work that authenticated their role at this key moment of the gospel's advance. Not every believer has apostolic power. They're a select group at a key moment in the life of the church. So please do not head into your office tomorrow or stand up in one of your lectures tomorrow and declare to whoever speaking, you son of the devil. That's not what's intended here. But Paul is crystal clear that Elymas or Bar-Jesus' work is the work of the devil, not so much of the nature, because of the nature of the work, because of its aim, because anything that obstructs the advance of the Christian gospel is demonic, of course it is. 
He's also described as the enemy of all righteousness. Of course, if you prevent the truth of Jesus Christ coming into the workplace, into your office, into your hospital, you are the enemy of all righteousness, the enemy of truth, the enemy of goodness, the enemy of purity, the enemy of people being put right with God and freed from their sin. And note that he's full of deceit and cunning. And the word for deceit is bait on a trap. Cunning is misinterpretation. Elemus, whatever he does, presents his thinking with great sophistication. And so everybody thinks, well, he's the guy. Until Paul comes along and speaks the gospel. He makes crooked the straight paths of the Lord, turning the proconsul away from the faith. This then gives us a very clear sense of what to expect as Christians engaged in gospel advance, which I take it if you're a Christian, you think you are. I hope so. It's striking that this is to be found in the very center of the regional powerhouse. He is the proconsul in the boardroom, in the hospital manager's meeting, in the corridors of power, in Westminster, in the House of Lords. No doubt it looked very, very civilized, upright, and correct. It's a mistake to make Elemus out to be a comical, fantastical figure from the school of witchcraft and wizardry. But as the Christian gospel advances, it meets such embedded ideologies that have shaped cultural practice. Speak to any Christian missionary who's taken the Christian gospel into previously uncharted territory, and they will tell you precisely that is the case. And so this week, I wrote to a couple of our mission partners working in previously unchristianized territory. Here is Joel in Cambodia in a village. Whenever there is sickness, sorry, that's uh, the other one. I'll give you Catherine's in a minute. Each village has their own witch doctor who declares the spirits have told them that no one is allowed to eat that coming year some sort of fruit, pumpkins, banana, cucumber, whatever. It becomes a forbidden food for that year. People eating or storing that food in their homes have to pay a fine or make a sacrifice, animal, not human. If a villager even sees that fruit or vegetable, like, for example, I get a banana out of my bag for a quick snack, Fear spreads over their faces like I've just pulled a knife on them. Married couples are not allowed to have a baby within their first year of marriage. If they do, again, it's a fine, a sacrifice demanded of them. This recently happened to a newly married Christian couple. They refused to make a sacrifice. It caused them huge stress and heartache with their non-believing families and neighbors and the village chief. They stood their ground. Then we hear from northern Nigeria. Whenever there is sickness or death, there must be someone who's caused it using evil powers. A witch can steal someone's soul and turn it into a physical animal, then slaughter the animal, leading to the death of the person whose soul they've stolen. They can then give the meat to someone else to eat. The witch can then steal that person's soul. Animals have multiple births. Humans don't. If twins are born, one must not be a human. It's abandoned. 
Joel, incidentally, also gave us news of her dog, Jimpy. I asked her how Jimpy was. Jimpy's doing well, in case you're wondering. <laughs> so the nature of the superstition will vary depending on the previous development of that culture. So in the Roman Greek world, the pantheon of classical gods, oh, the superstition was all around that. It was highly sophisticated, civilized. In Eastern religions, any number of myths. I remember speaking to a bloke on the touchline. He'd named his child after. An unusual name. Where did that name come from? Oh, it comes from my religion. A small boy went into the wood. He met a giraffe that had been um, adopted by a god. A conversation happened, and the boy's name was such and such. I said, do you actually believe that that small boy and met the giraffe and that the giraffe said, oh, no, of course I don't believe that. It's just myth. Of course I don't believe that. Superstition. There's superstition in Islam. In Christianized cultures, of course, a lot of this has been driven back. And one of the great realities of the Christian faith, as it lands, because Jesus Christ is Lord, is enthroned, risen, historically evidenced the risen, living Lord Jesus, so all demonic powers are tertiary at best, if you like. You're safe with the Lord Jesus. You're his. And all this kind of superstitious witchcraft begins to dissipate. If you want to follow that up, uh, there's a book by Rodney Stark. Some of you sociologists will have come across Rodney Stark, For the Glory of God, how monotheism led to reformations, science, without the Christian faith, no science is his argument, modern science, witch hunts and the end of slavery. He's got an excellent chapter on the driving back of superstition. Well, what kind of superstition will we face? One such superstition, surely, is the extraordinary notion that everything we see and touch and feel emerged from nowhere without prior cause. Now, when you pause and think about it, This kind of, I'll talk about it at the guest event, scientific mysticism is bizarre that something came from nothing. I mean, please. Professor Stephen Hawking said, because there is a law such as gravity, the universe can create itself from nothing. Now, that sounds very sophisticated. But as Professor John Lennox put it, Nonsense remains nonsense, even when taught by world-famous scientists. So here we see the gospel advancing, rational thought beginning to impact superstitious absurdities. Here we see the Apostle Paul preaching the risen Lord Jesus with all the evidence. Here we see superstition melting away, being driven back. Oh, it's a very powerful example here is the apostle but where you see christian truth take hold absurd superstitions such as something came from nothing begin to be scattered and so i want to ask you what would you have said back to the beginning at lunch when somebody who is really into feng shui and had organized their whole business Uh, even to the extent of having seven uh, fish in one tank and seven in the other, except when they died or bred. I mean, what would you have said? 
I, I, I mean, it's that kind of thing. I can think much better what I would have said now. But at the time, I just said this. It's my strong belief that as the Christian gospel recedes from a culture, superstition such as you're engaged in advances. And as the Christian gospel advances in a culture, these sort of superstitions recede. And we then went on and enjoyed a very good lunch. It may be that you have been exposed to some of this ghastly, enslaving superstition. may well be, whether it's ancestor worship or you've got to have the right vibes from the right movement of furniture around. It's horrible, isn't it? Utterly, utterly enslaving and terrifying. The reality of the gospel, Christian gospel, is it liberates us from that sort of slavery. You might like to come and talk to me or anybody else after meeting this evening or at some other occasion. But we would love to see you freed from that sort of horrible superstition. How does the gospel advance? The sending church, the speaking ministry, the silenced superstition. Let's pray together. We thank you, our Father, that the Lord Jesus Christ triumphed over all demonic powers at the cross, that he rose victorious and he reigns for eternity. Thank you for the safety and security, the liberation that comes from knowing the risen Lord Jesus. We thank you for establishing sending churches across the globe and all the benefits that have come to us in terms of freedom and the scattering of fear as we've surrendered to Jesus. We pray that in your kindness, you would make us such a church. Each one of us, prophets, teachers, speaking the glorious truth of Jesus Christ. And the absurd superstitions, Lord, we pray, those who labor under them around us, we pray that you would liberate them. In Jesus' name, amen.